1 Timothy chapter 5 Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her help in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over sixty, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves, because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Well, a number of years ago, my um, church that I was a part of, they had a, uh, a mission trip that they would regularly send people on every year to a rural part of Uganda. And this little team of, of Christians would, would go out and join with the local um, Christian charity that operated in this region. Uh, the charity ran a school and an orphanage and had evangelists that would go to outlying areas uh, ministering to the Batwa people, or what are sometimes referred to as the Pygmy people, uh, who live in um, very rural areas. And as I was preparing for that trip, I remember reading about the plight of many widows in Uganda. And when I got there, I saw something of it firsthand. So many people living in rural Uganda survive by subsistence farming. It's a very fertile place. You could plant just about anything, and it would grow. The, the soil is so dark and so rich. And so families in the countryside, they all have their little farm plots and their livestock, and that is how they provide for themselves and their, their families. But when a woman's husband dies, if she doesn't have other male members of the family living nearby, suddenly she becomes very vulnerable. Others from the area, sometimes it's even the family members of her husband, will come and um, try to 
force her to leave her home and her land through a campaign of intimidation, of um, fraud, of threats and violence. This can sometimes um, even start before her husband is buried. It happens very quickly. And it's so common, it's just referred to as land grabbing. It's taken for granted that this is what happens in some areas. And the, the authorities don't want to get involved in family disputes. So nothing is done to help these poor women. And so many widows are forced to provide for themselves through back-breaking labor, like quarrying stone and sometimes worse things. And you see them uh, along the road, breaking stone in some areas. Now that, of course, is not a problem that is unique to Uganda. You would find similar stories all over the developing world. Even in developed countries, widows can be left socially uh, and financially vulnerable and sometimes physically vulnerable. And that has always been the case. But throughout the Old Testament, God has declared his special concern and care for widows, for orphans, for immigrants, for all those who have no one around them to assist. He calls himself the father of the fatherless and the defender of the widows in Psalm 68, verse 5. And he repeatedly commands his people throughout the Old Testament that they are to be like him in caring for and protecting widows. He makes special provision for them in the law. And so you might remember, farmers are told to leave the edges of their crops unharvested so that widows and others can come in and gather food for themselves. And he declares fierce judgment through his prophets repeatedly through the Old Testament when the, the society as a whole has begun to oppress and abuse widows. And that concern carries through to the New Testament and to the church age as well. God, who never changes, is still concerned with the most vulnerable and their welfare. And he commands Christians who sh to share his concern. And the church has shared his concern from its earliest days. So you might recall from Acts chapter 6 that one of the first major obstacles that the church had to face and to figure out how to deal with was a, an unfair distribution, or at least the accusation of an unfair distribution, to widows in the church in Jerusalem. And they worked it out, and, and that was the place where deacons were first instituted and and um, given a task. And here in 1 Timothy 5, we find the most thorough instruction for the care of widows in all of Scripture. Now, while the church should care for all its people in many ways, this passage is about how the church has a responsibility to financially support some people. So that's the, the, the big issue that this passage deals with. How do we determine who we're meant to support and who we're not meant to support financially? Of course, we always want to care for every individual that's part of a church, but where does the church's money go is the big question here. Now, this would still be directly applicable to the plight of widows in lots of the developing world, but in much of the developed world, we have uh, state infrastructure, and we have um, safety nets and things that mean that 
some of this is not as directly applicable to us, and yet I think there are still some universal principles that we draw from this for how the church should use its money in social care. And so that's what we're going to look at. First thing that we need to see from these verses is that the church, the local church, is a spiritual family. We saw back in chapter 3, verse 15, that the church is the household, the family of God. And Christians are meant to treat their fellow Christians as family members in the church. So just as you interact with your parents differently than you interact with your brother and sister, uh, or, or sister rather, uh, we are told to interact with other Christians in a way that honors their age and their relationship to us. Now, not everyone has healthy relationships in their family, and I guess some of us might have experienced unhealthy family relationships. And so Paul uh, tells us what these healthy relationships are supposed to look like. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if, you were, as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Timothy, as the young pastor of the church, is expected to teach and instruct every single member, uh, whatever their age or, or gender might be, but different members require different approaches. He shouldn't harshly rebuke any church members, actually. That's what Paul is saying. That's the, the overriding principle. Don't harshly rebuke any church members because that's not how family should interact with one another. Rather, he should encourage them in the ways that are appropriate to, um, to them. So older people urged along as fathers and mothers, younger people urged along as brothers and sisters. And a special note of caution is given to ensure that he and all the men in the church relate to women both publicly and privately with complete purity. As, an as a brief uh, aside, women you need to note that the church should be a refuge from the sexual attention of men. And so if you feel that you're being treated in a way that's inappropriate, don't just accept it as normal or expected. Uh, don't just disappear from the church, please. But um, seek out somebody who you trust, who you can speak to it about. Speak to about it, rather so that we can help address the issue, so that we can relate to each other in the way that we're supposed to, and so that nobody uh, feels um, made to be uncomfortable in that way. But the point is that our relationship should be characterized by loving warmth toward one another, by honoring each other across generation gaps and uh, across gender differences. The local church should be a place where we, um, where we know we belong and where we genuinely care for and feel cared by other people. And that is important for all of us, but it is especially important for those who have no natural family around them to support them. And that is where Paul goes next in, in this passage. I have to admit that I think I haven't gotten this quite right all the time. I think I sometimes have spoken to older members harshly, and if I've done that to you, I apologize. I want to treat you in a way that is uh, worthy of respect and 
as a person made in God's image. And so uh, I repent if I've done that to you or if I've done that to somebody that you know. And I hope that you will um, be seeking to treat each other in that family sort of way as well. So the, the local church is a spiritual family. Secondly, the local church cares for the genuinely needy. The local church cares for the genuinely needy. In verses 3 to 16, Paul gives a positive command to the church to care for the genuinely needy people. That's stated in verse 3 and verse 16. They bracket the section. So give proper recognition to those who are widows, who are really in need. A better translation maybe, or just a, a briefer one that gets to the point would be honor or support widows who are indeed widows. And then verse 16, if any woman who's a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Again, so that the church can help those who are indeed widows. Along with the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, Paul says that the church must support and care for widows in a very practical way. But only genuinely needy widows. And so the natural question is, what does it mean for somebody to be a widow indeed? Isn't a widow just anyone whose husband has sadly died? Well, yes and no. Paul explains that uh, in verses 4 to 16, that widows indeed, by that term, he means those who have no other way to support themselves. We see that summarized in verse 5, where Paul uses that same term, widows indeed. The widow indeed is left all alone and puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. While many women outlive their husbands, as some have sadly um, experienced here, and no doubt other women here will experience someday, the widows that Paul is talking about are the destitute widows, the ones that have no pension, no dowry, no children or wider family to support them. Such a woman can only look to the promises of God in the scriptures, in those Old Testament passages where he says, I protect the widows, I care for the fatherless, and she can only pray to him, Lord, care for me, help me. And Paul is saying that the church is the way that God protects, cares for, and provides for women in that situation. Some of you will know that I was away for the, the last couple of weeks. Thank you, Rob, for preaching last week. And uh, John, I know, was here the week before that, and I'm sure he was well-received as well. In my travels, at the end of one service, the final amen had barely been said when an elderly woman approached me after the, the service and began speaking to me as sort of excitedly. It became clear that she was not entirely mentally well. And it was equally clear, though, that she was passionate about the Lord Jesus. And she had a love for him that uh, she was speaking excitedly about. And so she spoke of her devotion to Jesus, of her constant prayers to him. She um, also asked me if I was trusting him, which is not the most encouraging question after you've just preached a sermon at a church 
to ask whether you're trusting Jesus, but I trust she meant it well. And after the service, I had lunch with uh, a member of staff of that church, and I asked about that lady. And he explained that long ago, due to tragic circumstances, her family um, had broken apart. Her marriage had dissolved, and she had descended into years of alcohol abuse. And that that was um, likely behind her mental um, state currently. But after some years, she had made her way into the church somehow. She had found a, a community of people that had welcomed her and encouraged her and tried to help her, and, and she put down the alcohol. And for the last 40 years, she had not been drinking. Uh, she had been part of the church. And beautifully, I was told, of, and, and this person had no idea what I was preaching on this week, but uh, beautifully, I was told of the way that the church had come around her. So there were um, people who would take turns visiting with her, who would take groceries to her, who would help her to get to doctor's appointments and uh, go with her and, and, and help her to, to clean in her little flat and all those sorts of things. This is a woman who had no natural family around anymore, whether uh, any of her children were surviving or not. She was not in touch with them. She's not a Hong Konger. Um, by background. And so apart from the church, she really has no one. She has nothing. The, the state has some part in, in uh, providing for her financially, so her entire financial provision is not from the church. However, socially, uh, spiritually, and somewhat financially, she is supported by the church. And once you see how the church has come together around this woman, you cannot help, I found, but praise God for his grace and his goodness. That is God keeping his promise to defend the widow and to father the fatherless. And that's what the caring ministry of the local church does. It shows the value of godliness. Paul said in chapter 4 that, Bodily training has some value, but uh, godliness, training in godliness has value in every way for both this life and the next. And this is the value of godliness. This woman uh, and women like her, uh, widows, orphans, and so forth, who are helped by the church are gaining much practical value from the godliness of God's people. There's great gain in godliness. And that is a powerful witness, I think, to a pagan city that largely doesn't care about the, the neediest people around, doesn't give them a second look. The wider society can turn a blind eye, maybe, but we look at such people in our church, and we see a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, and so we work together by God's grace as a family to care for members in need like that. But notice that the church is not commanded to support every needy person in the same way. And that is a, a key part of what Paul is saying. He, he explains that only widows who are widows indeed should be financially supported by the church. And even if a person is truly needy, the church should only use its limited financial resources to provide long-term support for those who meet certain qualifications. 
what he's explaining here. The social care ministry of the church is limited. That's the third major point we have to see. So, verse 9, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, is well known for good deeds, bringing up uh, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Those supported by the church, in addition to being genuinely needy, they should also be believers who have borne fruit in keeping with godliness. That's what Paul's saying. Now that can be tested in different ways. It might look at, like different things for different individuals, but you know, is she known for good works? Is the person known uh, to want to do good? If um, this woman had children, maybe they've died or abandoned her now, but was she diligent in raising them? Uh, did she help bring up, if she didn't have children, did she help bring up the children of the church and the, the orphans around, maybe? Uh, did she show hospitality? Is she known for, uh, for helping the, the afflicted, for caring for the Lord's people. I think Paul is saying uh, not that oh, any widow must score 10 out of 10 in all these categories, but there should be some evidence that she meets these qualifications. Her track record should show that she's a believer, that she has been trying to lead a godly life. And if she's been a faithful mother in the church in that sense, then she should be cared for like a mother should be cared for. You see? But does that mean that we don't care about the rest of the people, whether outside the church or, or inside the church? Well, certainly not. We know from this letter that God loves all people. He wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we believe that because of his love, God has, as part of his provision for all people, built a support system into the very fabric of human life. It's called the natural family. And that is where Paul goes in this passage. The church is a spiritual family, but it doesn't replace the natural family. You see, there are still responsibilities. Instead, the church should strengthen us as Christians to play our part in the natural family and to do what we're required to do in that way. Look through these verses again, and you will see what great emphasis is put on um, the primary responsibility of individuals to care for their own family. It's there in verse 4. It's there in verse 8. It's there in verse 14. It's there in verse 16. If we want to see the most effective and impactful, God-given means of welfare and social work, we only need to look to the natural family. And Paul gives us four compelling reasons why, as Christians, we cannot, we must not neglect our duty to our own natural family. First, we care for our elderly family members because it is a fair repayment, and it pleases God. Verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. 
for this is pleasing to God. Our parents and our grandparents and our other family members put so much into caring for us as we were being raised. And, and parents, you'll know how much you put into the lives of your children. And so it's only right that we should care for them when they need it. This is something that I think Asian culture does overall largely better than Western culture in many ways. Because here, most people recognize that they have a responsibility to financially provide for, maybe even physically uh, care for elderly relatives, and they often are brought into the family home. And that is good and godly, according to what Paul says. Of course, in most parts of the developed world, elderly people will have some sort of pension to draw on, uh, or some sort of social safety net provided by the state, and that is okay. That is not contrary to what Scripture is saying, but that means uh, that the, the application is slightly different. Um, but even so, the majority of us will in some way be called upon to care for our elderly relatives. And when we care for them, that is what is pleasing to God. That is actually religion that pleases God, to care for the widows, the orphans, and first and foremost, those within our own family. Piety, spiritual piety, looks like bathing, like feeding, like caring for mom and dad sometimes, often. Secondly, caring for our elderly family members is consistent with the Christian faith. That's a positive way of putting what we find in verses 7 and 8. Give the people these instructions so that no one will be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for those of their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If there were some in Ephesus that were teaching that spiritual truth freed them from worldly obligations, that they no longer needed to worry about the things that all the other people had to worry about, Paul clarifies that that is not the case. Even non-Christians know that God has given them a responsibility for elderly family. The grace that we've received from Jesus Christ, that doesn't nullify our other responsibilities. In fact, it should enable us to do them more diligently, to strengthen us to do what we naturally are obligated to do. Grace um, doesn't supersede nature. Grace restores nature. Third, caring for our elderly family members relieves the burden on the church. I think that is a very key part of what Paul is saying here. So the same point, I think, is made in verse 14 and verse 16, although in quite different ways. So I counsel younger women, sorry, younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. If a woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Paul doesn't expect everybody to get married. He makes that clear in, verses, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So that's not something that everyone is expected to do. 
if you have the gift of singleness, it's better not to marry so that you can be fully devoted to the Lord and, and not have to um, have divided interests. And I suppose that is the sort of promise that these widows were making in the church in Ephesus. They, they were making some sort of pledge that they wouldn't remarry. For the rest of their lives, they would serve the Lord, serve the church, and so the church would support them, having made that pledge. But the majority of people have not ever been and will not ever be gifted for the single life, for singleness. The majority of people are gifted in such a way that they should be married and have children and, and so forth, if they're able. And young widows who had already shown that they wanted to be married, their husbands died, Paul says it's actually better for them to remarry somebody else and, and have children with those other uh, th that new husband if they're able. And that is actually a good and a godly thing to do, especially in a culture where it's very difficult to support yourself in your old age if you don't have children. Because somebody is going to have to care for you. And if it's not your children, if it's not the state, if it's, if, if it's not some other structure, the church is required to come in. And that is a burden, a financial burden on the church. There will be blessings in it, but that is a financial burden. And so younger widows should marry those who have family members who are widows, should care for them, and the church should not be burdened. And that is so last point this morning. The, that is so the local church can focus on its primary calling. As a pastor, I occasionally get calls in my office or people dropping by, and this has happened here and, and elsewhere, um, asking for money. And most of the time when that happens, it's a person I've never met, and they inevitably tell me something of their story, and, and often I have felt for them. But when it comes time to respond, I have to say I'm not able to just give away the money that people have given to the church to you. Why don't you start coming to church this week? And as you do, over time, you will meet some of the most generous people I know in the church. And you know, over time, I'm sure that there will be people there, you will meet people there who will want to help you, whether that's financially or otherwise. And then, of course, I never see them again because they're very often just wanting to, to take some money and, and go about their lives. But I think that is a consistent way of dealing with those sorts of requests because Paul is teaching here about what our responsibility as a church is, who we have to care for. The church has a mission. And it also has limited resources. And so... It's not called to care for the whole of society. We're not a social work department, social welfare department. We cannot be. Some churches get mixed up in that, and, and it is a drain. It is a distraction. Nor is the church a charity aiming to end all world poverty. Those are good things to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad that people do those things, and Christians sometimes do them because they have faith in Christ, and they want to, to glorify him by loving people. Do that if that is what you're called to do, and go uh, and, and do it boldly. But the church as an organization, the church as the church, does not have that responsibility and actually will be um, 
distracted from its main calling if it takes that on. The church as a local gathering is called to provide for the most vulnerable in our own church family. And when there's no other option, that's when we're called to do that. We're commanded to care for Christian brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers who are in genuine need without anywhere else to turn. But we are to limit that aspect of church ministry as much as possible by being godly as individuals and caring for our own families so that the church is free to do what it's primarily called to do, which is to be the pillar, the foundation of truth in the world, to hold it out so that all people can be saved. God wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. He's using the church as his plan A to get that message out. And so we pray for all people. We train in godliness. We urge people to live out their godliness by caring for their own families so that the church can be what it's called to be. So that God will save through the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, that you are the defender of widows, the father to the fatherless, that you care for the alien, the stranger in our midst. And Lord, please would you shape our hearts in the same way. Please would you give us a love and a concern for our brothers and sisters in the church. And, and if there are those who are genuinely needy in our midst, please would you help us to see and to care for them. And Lord, where uh, there are ways where we, maybe we've been distracted in the past, maybe we're distracted at the moment by trying to do all sorts of things that you haven't called us to do. Please call us back and help us to diligently do the work you've set before us as a church. To glorify you in our lives and in our doctrine, in our message, and in the way that we interact with the world. For your glory's sake and for, for Christ's name's sake, we pray. Amen.